there's about a 400-year-old fictional story of a middle-aged man of Spain named Alonso, a, no, a nobleman, lived a frugal and simple life with his niece and housekeeper. But as an avid reader of chivalric romances, his mind was filled with fantasies of defending the helpless and fighting evil. And then he went mad. He renames himself Don Quixote, dons a suit of armor, becomes a knight errant, gets on his workhorse, sets off to win the hand of his pretend lady love. To him, the dingy inn's a grand castle. The keeper is his lord. The prostitutes there are ladies. He mistakes windmills and wineskins as ferocious giants to be vanquished. He recruits Sancho, his farming neighbor, as his squire and sidekick. No surprise that he leaves behind a trail of destruction and mayhem. Finally, Alonso regains his sanity, but very late on his deathbed. And he's very sorry for all the trouble he had caused. Many find Miguel Cervantes' character tragic yet lovable. Gallantry and valor move his nose out of books and feet to Sally Fort. But Alonso's a man out of time, and his ideals are out of place. Perhaps we feel sympathy for him because we admire similar figures in real life. Say things like he means well, his heart's in the right place. He's a hopeless romantic in a fallen world. At least he stands for something. We got convictions. As Christians, we too might feel some sympathy for such throwbacks, if you want to call them that. Maybe we see a bit of ourselves in him. Often our values and our very own existence feel out of place and out of time. But I say that's about it in terms of overlap. Can't draw too many parallels here. See, we're fixated on God's word, not in romance novels. We don't look back wistfully to the times that have gone and mourn that Shibari's dead. Or We look to the future, anticipate the resurrection. We don't lose touch with reality, even if the world thinks we're crazy. Uh, nor are we trying to make this world a better place. We say it's not worthy of us. We're just passing through. Our citizenship's in heaven. We desire a better country. And lastly, at the end of our time here, we don't have to be on our deathbeds wallowing in regret. We can rest assured to live as Christ, to die as gain. Well, if all this sounds um, quixotic, I want to convince you today from a passage that shows us how we can be better than Don Quixote, live and die for a greater cause, greater purpose, greater ideal. We'll be foolhardy, but we would hardly be a fool. We'd be a fool in the world's eyes, but wise for God, faithful to him who loves us, impervious to those who hate us. So let's read 
1 Corinthians 3, 18, to chapter 4, verse 5. 318 to 45. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, He catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. For with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. The chapter division serves as something like a perforated line. Now you have two paragraphs, and they mirror each other in structure. At the beginning of each are imperatives. Chapter 3, verse 18 has two. Let no one deceive himself. Let him become a fool. Chapter 4, verse 1 has one. Let a man so consider us servants, stewards. So Paul gets right to the point at the top of each paragraph. And then later in each paragraph, there are more imperatives. Unlike the early ones that mark the starting point, these are closers. Look for the adverb, therefore. They're in chapter 3, verse 21, and chapter 4, verse 5. Let no one boast in men and judge nothing before the time, respectively. Here's a Bible reading tip. When you encounter the word therefore, ask yourself, what is therefore, therefore? Why did the author use it? How's the argument moving, flowing, turning in context? Often you'll find or detect an inference, deduction, summary, or conclusion, as is the case here. And as expected, before and between and after all these imperatives are explanations, scriptural citations, etc. So with all that in mind, here are two principles. And I like to think of them like spiritual bifocal lenses. Each lens will provide a twofold vision. Look downward and we gain a proper perspective what's here and now. We see the wisdom of this world and the ministers of the church. But also look ahead for a grander view of our blessings in Christ and a preview of judgment and the world to come. So again, two bifocal lenses for a godly vision. One, avoid worldly wisdom and know your rich position in Christ. So that's chapter 3, verse 18 to 23. Avoid worldly wisdom and know your rich position in Christ. 
And two, appraised ministers, praise as in evaluate or appraised ministers, but consider them accountable to Christ. Appraised ministers, but consider them accountable to Christ. That's chapter 4, verse 1 to 5. I'll repeat these points later, but first, avoid worldly wisdom and know your rich position in Christ. The contrast between the wisdom of this age and the wisdom of God should be a familiar refrain by now. There's a huge gap, great divide between the two wisdoms. You cannot simply skip or hop over it. As early as chapter 1, verse 17, Paul spoke of the incompatibility of the two. Christ sent him to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ shall be made of no effect. He went on to describe God's opposition to worldly wisdom, its futility for knowing God, its inability to save us. There's no need to look for such wisdom among the Corinthians at the time of their conversion or in Paul's preaching. What must be valued instead is God's wisdom revealed in his son Jesus Christ and through his Holy Spirit. You hear all this and maybe you roll your eyes and say, Paul, you said this already. But the world lures us with its charms and its tricks. But listen as he warns in 1 Corinthians 3.18. Don't be fooled by the world. Imitate Paul and become a fool for Christ. We'll see that next time. Wisely become a fool in this age because the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. There's a character in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress named Mr. Worldly Wise Man. The name says it all, right? He's a man from the town of carnal policy. He wants the Christian to have an easy life. Abandon the Bible. Seek morality. Your good works as the way to salvation. That when you feel the pull of such temptation of the worldly wisdom, run to God. Listen to Paul as he says elsewhere in Romans 12, too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, renew your mind through the scriptures. You continue in 1 Corinthians 3.19. The apostle cites two passages ahead of us here to help us avoid worldly wisdom. First, there's Job 5.13. You might raise your eyebrows at this quotation because it's not from Job, the hero of that book. It comes from Eliphaz, the Temanite. And it seems strange because later in Job, chapter 42, the Lord rebukes Eliphaz, saying, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So you kind of see the dilemma here. Why does Paul cite someone who's rebuked Later. Now, I'll just share two thoughts on this. First, Job 5.13 by itself is a true statement. It, this was the only thing Eliphaz ever said to Job. He would have been a you know, really good friend of Job after all. But it wasn't. Once you factor into equation, all that Eliphaz said, his solution to Job's problems, wrong. One commentator observes here, quote, Great truths misapplied 
only hurt more those who are already hurting. End quote. And that's certainly true of Eliphaz and his friends, and friends of Job. And my second thought on Job 5.13 is this. I can't help but comment on the irony of the situation. The wit, I call it the spirit-inspired brilliance of it all. Think about Eliphaz himself. He thought he was a great wise man saying great wise things. But in the end, he was wrong, and God calls him out on it. I just said this. He had to eat his words. So Eliphaz, it turns out, he's the very same guy that, whom the Lord catches in his craftiness. I can almost picture Paul laughing out loud, or at least, at least a chortle, or a chuckle, or something. So in Job 5.13, cited in 1 Corinthians 3.19, there's both truth and irony. As he does with the wicked in general, the Lord catches the wise in their craftiness. They'll, in, they'll end up like Haman. The words of the king of kings will cover the face of schemers. Just picture it as if the gallows prepared for their enemies will become their own. The nooses around their neck tighten. God will return their evil on their own heads. Moving on to the next verse, more straightforward is Paul's quotation of Psalm ninety-four, eleven. If Job five thirteen's for the man who thinks he knows everything, Psalm ninety-four, eleven's for the man who thinks God knows nothing. We already read Psalm ninety-four, verse eleven, and the verses before it. So, I'll just sum it up here: the proud, the wicked, the workers of iniquity, speak, boast, and persecute God's people. They think, the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob understand. And this is senseless and foolish, because God who invented the ear and the eye can certainly hear and see. The one who instructs can correct the conclusion, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they're futile. So everything in 1 Corinthians 3, 18 to 20, Paul's exhortations and citations builds up to the conclusion of verse 21. Therefore, let no one boast in men. So stop being a know-it-all. Humbly turn to God who knows all. Now, if Paul had stopped here, that might be good enough, convincing enough for me to stop boasting in men and only boast in Christ. But then Paul has one more supporting argument starting at the second half of verse 21. We learned that not only do we need to avoid worldly wisdom, we also need to know our rich position in Christ. I think here's how Apostle's making his point. Some Christians want the best of both worlds. They want a happy afterlife later, and they want a happy life now. They want the respect of fellow saints and the respect of their unsaved neighbors. So they're looking for some way to double dip here. They might, for example, as one strategy, like gravitate towards a well-spoken pastor having some semblance of worldly wisdom. They'll cling to him and follow him like a celebrity and present him to the world and say, look, here's a guy that you guys could respect. Here's a wise guy that even the world can respect. But when you say, I belong to this person, this party, or I follow this 
servant. They're actually being short-sighted. You're really selling yourself short. You're clutching, grasping, clawing after only a small portion of your inheritance. Because you're possessive of lesser things that serve Jesus, you forget that you possess all things through Jesus. Now let's go to the list that Paul has here. God's people are already yours through Jesus. So why limit yourself to just one of the ministers when all of them are yours? Paul, Apollo, Cephas. The world's already yours through Jesus. I mean that more in a future sense. Why chase after it when the meek will inherit the earth anyways? Eternity is already yours through Jesus. Why be so concerned about life, worried about today's tomorrow, respect of others, when we'll reign with Christ forever? We even own death, as it says there. We feared it once. Now it's merely a porter or doorkeeper to heaven. We're more than conquerors, and nothing, not even death, things present nor things to come, will separate us from the love of God in Christ. All these things belong to you because you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God the Father. Jesus, for whom are all things, brings you in as friend and brother. The Father adopts us as his children to be heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Why do we want to belong to anyone less or anything lesser? Even if we lose everything in this life, we'd only be spilling some pocket change. It's true what we sang earlier, yet how rich is my condition. God and heaven are still my own. Or as we sing at other times, Oh, how strange and divine I can sing, All is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. So why do we settle for less than all that we have in Jesus? Why do we cherish the wisdom of this age when in Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? I think C.S. Lewis was right when he observed, quote, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. If mud pies sound juvenile, and if Lewis appears to be only addressing unbelievers, here's something else. 24 years ago in Tennessee, John Piper stood before 40,000 college students. He spoke of two elderly Christian women from Minnesota. Instead of retiring as career medical professionals, they took their skills and the message of the gospel to Cameroon as missionaries. They sought the poor, the sick, the lost, and the hardest parts of the world. They died there around the age of 80 in a car accident. And Piper asked, is this a tragedy? The crowds roared, no. And the speaker agreed. Then he went on, I'll read you what a tragedy is. 
He pulled out a page from Reader's Digest. It read, Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. Piper went on, that's a tragedy. Don't buy it. Don't buy that dream. Don't waste your life. You don't want to stand before the Lord and say, here it is, Lord, my shell collection. And I got a good swing. Look at my boat. Don't settle for less. Going back to the previous passage, where God's temple indwelt by Holy Spirit, we're meant for more, much more than storing mud pies and hoarding seashells. Even Christians like you and me need reminders that all things are ours in Jesus. So don't obsess over members of Christ, more than Christ, who is the head of the church. Don't pursue causes and follow movements lesser than God's kingdom and the gospel. Put on your spiritual lens. Avoid worldly wisdom here and know your rich position in Christ. So it's so liberating to know this truth. We no longer have to fawn over popular Christian leaders. Now we're free now to respect them with sober judgment, see them as God sees them, nothing more, nothing less. That gets us the next lens for godly vision. Appraise ministers, but consider them accountable to Christ. Moving on to the next chapter and next paragraph, Paul goes from, I would say, more general matters, mostly having to do with the world outside of the church, to focus on ministries within the church. As he discusses, he's going to use a lot of verbs of assessment, like consider in verse 1, know in verse 4, there's one more for judge used three times in verses 3 to 4, and another similar but different word for judge in verse 5. To be less technical and more straightforward, Paul both cares and he doesn't care what you think of the Lord's ministers. And here's what I mean by that. First, in one sense, the apostle cares. He cares what you think. He cares that you think rightly of him and his associates. He wants everyone to esteem them as servants and stewards. That word servant in the middle of verse 1 is not the more common do loss you'll find all over Paul's writings. It's Cooperetes, looking at the word closely, it begins with the prefix under. There's the stress on the subordinate position. It's translated most often and elsewhere as officers under religious authorities and in other contexts as ministers and attendants. The most relevant cross-reference for today, I would say, is Acts 26.16. Acts 26.16. There Paul recalled Jesus' words to him at the Damascus Road. This is Jesus to Paul. I have appeared to you for this purpose to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I tend to think that Jesus is saying 
when he says the things which I will yet reveal to you correspond to Paul's talk of the mysteries of God here. So we're talking not only the gospel, but extending to all the spirit-inspired writings of Paul. Next, we're told uh, Paul and his fellow apostles are not only Christ's servants, they're his stewards. Now, what is a steward? Well, if servanthood emphasizes subordination, stewardship, I would say, emphasizes responsibility. And by responsibility, I mean given jobs, tasks, duties. Stewardship involves caring for someone else's resources, human and material. The steward must have wisdom, integrity, and performance, both when they're under watch, but also when they're home alone, right? Under just faith of that master there. Now, Paul narrows down all of these requirements to down to one in 1 Corinthians 4, 2, faithfulness. Stewards answer to the master of the house who demands faithfulness. This is where Paul's basically saying, I could not care less what you think of me. I do care very much what my master thinks of me. Or in other words, sure, go ahead and appraise ministers, but do remember they're ultimately accountable to Christ. So let's start backwards here. Uh, Paul concludes, he who judges me is the Lord, right? That's the highest overarching principle for his ministry. Everything orbits around this. Each and every other assessment becomes relatively a very small thing. Paul could stand before the entire Corinthian congregation, and it'd be a very small thing. His big day in the court is not before men. There's another day, a day of revelation and Declaration, testing of the works of each minister, talked about the judgment seat of Christ. Even his own self-assessment is a small thing, relatively speaking. That's what Paul means when he says, I do not even judge myself at the end of verse 3. In verse 4, when he says, I know of nothing against myself, he's saying that as far as he knows, he serves with the conscience that's good, pure, and without offense. But even such a clean record of ministries, that's not what vindicates him. He's ultimately accountable to God. And it's best this way. Leave it up to the Lord who has the comprehensive view on all matters. Like a surgeon, he can wield this word like a knife, cut through the complexity and the layers, discern the thoughts and intents of the heart, He'll connect every motive with every choice. To him, the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to him. If a man of understanding can draw out counsel in the deep, watery heart of man, how much more God who alone searches and knows the hearts of all. So it's after and only after God's servants give their accounts to him, receive their praise from him, that we can write the definitive final word on them and their ministries. So our eulogies and biographies are, in a sense, incomplete. Wait for that summons to the judgment seat of Christ before writing a summary. 
it's better to withhold our final judgment until God's final judgment. So then appraised ministers will consider them accountable to Christ. So all this talk of wisdom and foolishness, accountability and judgment, is good for the soul. And I've been mostly addressing the believers today, but I must address any non-Christian listening here or later via recording. So you may feel a bit defensive as a non-believer as the Bible repeatedly attacks human pride and wisdom. But you must hear this, know this well. You cannot rely on your intellect to get into heaven. Remember the world through its wisdom did not know God. You can gain much in this world through education and your smarts, but you won't find what really matters for eternity. What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul if he himself is destroyed or lost? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? That is the greatest foolishness. But did you know that as 2 Timothy 3.15 tells us, the Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. To make sense of it all, we begin with God's demands in his word. The law gives us the knowledge of sin so that we may know what's right and what's wrong, like how covenant is wrong. We're told not to lie, steal, cheat on our spouses. But sin goes beyond outward actions. Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, blasphemy, pride, and yes, foolishness. God knows well our hearts. It's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. He will judge everyone and everything, including all of our secrets. But there's hope in the gospel. Know that we're guilty as sinners, deserving eternity in hell is half the battle here in terms of the message. That's because the law as our tutor brings us to Christ. That we might be justified by faith. We read in the Bible that God the Father sent his son to save us. Jesus is fully God and fully man at the same time. He was filled with wisdom greater than Solomon. He was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. He lived a perfect life, yet he was humiliated at the cross. In the eyes of the worldly wise, he died as a fool. The whole notion of a mighty ruler crucified is foolishness to the world. But the foolishness and the weakness of God is stronger than men. In fact, this is the message of the cross, the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. That's because it was at the cross that Jesus died for our sins, paying him for the penalty of our law-breaking that we should pay, God's wrath. Next, he rose again from the grave on the third day. He gave many proofs of his resurrection before ascending to heaven. Someday he'll return to judge all mankind. He'll make fools out of those wise in their own eyes. 
He'll exalt the fools for Christ so that they'll be wise, shining like the brightness of the firmament forever. So I urge that every person in this room or listening elsewhere to be saved, to be justified, repent, turn away from sin, turn to Jesus and trust in him alone. You can't be saved by good works. You already committed plenty bad and nothing can erase that record. Nothing but Jesus, his blood. You can receive forgiveness of sin and eternal life as a gift from the Lord and only as a gift. God saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is how we can be wise for salvation. The believers throughout the last few hundred years have adopted this saying as they gave themselves over to God. He is no fool who gives gives away what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. At the moment, God's people and servants do not amount to much in this world, but they don't see what we see. Like when we sing, all I have is Christ, Jesus is my life, this refrain does not reveal our limitations, how little we have. Quite the opposite, having Jesus means we have everything through him. Through Jesus, we won for eternity. Now that's true wisdom. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you as disciples of your Son. Lord, as Christians, we have taken up that cross, turned our back to the world. We are crucified to the world. The world is crucified to us. Yet we admit and we confess with sorrow that sometimes we're lured by it. We envy it. We're still fighting. Lord, we ask that we would value you above all things. Lord, may we see you as who you are. See you as our treasure. See our position through your son. See that we are your servants and stewards. We answer to you. Remind us that the world here and now compares as nothing to the world that is coming. Give us that truth through your word. Medita- help us to meditate on it and rejoice in it and to tell others about it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.